and everyone is a fan of something. And the ability to create a new category within the licensing ecosystem of custom collectibles uh, really spoke to me. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where my partner, Joe Favorito, and I, Tom Richardson, talk about the business of sports. Uh, Joe's a little distracted, so I guess I need to keep talking for a second. Um, we're actually going to be doing our second episode in a row talking about a really exciting entrepreneurial venture. Um, but the twist with this one is it's a formerly kind of corporate guy who became an entrepreneur and has a really yeah. interesting story to tell. So we'll get into that in a second. But Joe, good to be with you again two weeks in a row. And we actually got to see each other last night at an industry event. Uh, shout out to Glenn Harine, who organized this event for the Sports and Fitness Industry Association in New York City. And their CEO, Tom Cove, did a great job of giving a really nice overview of what's happening in the world of participatory sports. Joe, uh, I know you enjoyed that presentation. What were some of your takeaways? Well, it's funny. You know, we kind of joked afterwards, like we go to these boondoggle events and it's good because you can see people that you haven't seen and you don't really learn anything. Um, (laughs) I think that um, there were a bunch of things to take away from that. One is that these the the sports industry in terms of products and in terms of uh, fitness and, and all the pieces that go with that is really working hard to bring things back to the United States because the best piece of trivia I learned last night, Tom, is there are a total of 12 domestic, there are 12 flights from the United States direct to China a week now. Yeah, That's it. Yeah, There used to be 300. Now there's 12. Right. Right. And the average price, he said, is $20,000. So and the reason why is because they can't fly over Russia now. They have to circumvent Russia to get there. And the industry is desperately trying to find ways to bring manufacturing and, and decrease shipping back to the United States to keep costs down, but also keep supply going. That was number one. Number two is something that we've talked about before, which is flag football and the growth there. Um, how surprisingly, he said that Tackle football in high school is still very much a growth industry. Year yeah, over I year. was really surprised to hear that because all um, the story, the storylines are the last 10 years of the d- decline. Yep. The concern about bl- uh, brain injury and things like that. Yeah, um, it was. Um, and also flag, really, Joe, you know, a couple of shout outs for flag football. Yeah, flag is, flag is big. Um, lacrosse was like, it was funny. It was like, it was flat unless you want to sell to people, high net worth people. Then it's a growth industry. So yeah, yeah. kind of makes sense. Um, you know, pickleball, obviously, which we'll touch on. And what I will say is that pickleball from a, from a participation standpoint continues to grow and we get that. Um, but obviously there was no mention of professional pickleball, thank God, which is an absolute disaster and won't go anywhere. So, um, all good stuff. I mean, it was really tremendously enlightening. The best thing is, as you know, another good thing that came out of it was, we were in a room where we really didn't know a lot of people, Tom, which I thought yeah. was really good yeah. to see people from the from other parts of an industry that that exist, whether it's you know bowling or um, you know racket sports or or what the the leagues do in that space. And and uh, tremendously important. Check out sfia.com. Uh, they have a report that just came out. Definitely worth sharing. We're going to try and have somebody on in a couple of weeks to talk about it. So it was a great night. Yeah, it's also a reminder how, despite the tough time we went through at the beginning and through the pandemic with participatory sports, it's it's back with the vengeance right now, mm-hmm. statistically speaking. Yeah. Some of those numbers were kind of eye-popping. By the way, one other eye-popping number which he pointed out is there's 20 – how many how many sports did he say? Like, like 144, yeah. I, I think. Like, so they have 144 categories, but yet 20% of the audience that they surveyed doesn't participate – at least once a year in one of those. Yeah. So. Even some in general, like I think the word yeah. fitness. Yeah. Uh, that was a little yeah. scary. But um, we didn't put out, throw up like fit, fitness and heart disease together. That that never really kind of played together. That's because anyway. that's all about IRL, Joe, that the world of SFIA is IRL in real life. It's about physical stuff, but we're so obsessed with digital. Yeah. So here's my, to introduce our guests, I want to give you a, ask you a question. Can you mm-hmm. define the word fidgetal? Fidgetal? Fidgetal. P-H-Y. Fidgetal. No. 
But I know, but our guest have absolutely said he can. So yes, I'm uh, raising my as hand. I was, as I was preparing for the pod, I had heard the word before, but I was reminded uh, of the word which I love, and I don't believe Joe it has ever been uttered in our 320 mm. plus episodes. I would, of, I would say I, I consider myself fairly fidgetal too, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, it's a it's also actually a good follow up to the event last night, the SFI event, because we are talking about the marriage with this new business of physical and digital activities and products. So, and I look, by the really, way, I'm, I, this is nothing I have to be sold on. You know, I've known uh, our guest for a little while and, and I think he's onto something that is, is continuing to grow. So let's get to it. Okay. We are pleased to welcome today the founder and CEO of Sweet Chameleon, which is still a relatively low profile company because they're not really fully out there yet, but They've made some really good momentum since they launched last year. And Sweet Chameleon is a company that works with brands and creators in sports, gaming, and entertainment excuse me, to monetize IP and reward fan communities through the creation of licensed custom collectibles. This digital business that leverages 3D printing technology to enable the production of physical collectibles and corresponding Digital experiences, content, and offers is a really interesting new part of the uh, the marriage, as I said, of the world we grew up in with physical products associated with our passions and our interests, and the notion of digital collectibles, which is a phrase and a topic we've all gotten used to over the last few years with the introduction of consumer NF- NFTs, which we'll get into. So we are talking about Michael Dubb. Michael, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. I feel like you threw me an alley-oop with that fidgetal reference. Now <laughs> I just have to, you know, dunk it, catch it and dunk it. Exactly. So you've such an interesting background. As I mentioned before, Michael spent his career more as a corporate guy, uh, having worked at places like MTV. I hope some of the young people can remember MTV. It's not quite as big culturally as it was when Joe and, and MTV I were news up. is now gone. Yes, yeah. but I, I tell you, when Joe and I were young, and Michael, MTV was enormous in the world of entertainment and media and and our culture. Uh, it's receded a little bit, but it's still around. And then, of course, Time Inc., another iconic brand that is barely known by most young people. And then he, as he got into the deeper in the digital world, he actually went out on his own, I believe, and did some work with his own agencies, uh, Raspberry Red and DX Agency, I think it's called. Correct. So, and now he's an entrepreneur. So, Michael, you got to kind of start with that. Like, how did you transition out of this more corporate conventional career into something as intriguing and challenging as as a brand new business? Uh, it, it was all about the passion for me uh, as a lifelong collector of everything from concert tickets to figures to Hot Wheels cars uh, from my earliest uh, childhood memories where as a Jets fan, I could never get my Jet collectibles because they never made them. Uh, I never got over that. And the fact that my concert tickets and other collectibles are decaying by the day I became aware of 3D printing technology and saw the opportunity to create something for everyone. Everyone is a fan of something. And the ability to create a new category within the licensing ecosystem of custom collectibles where there's no minimum order quantities, there's no inventory, uh, really spoke to me. And there's no time like the present to take the leap of faith and to start doing it. So you obviously had the idea, but it takes a lot to go from an idea to an actual plan. Talk about the process of taking that first big step, because you've made a lot of progress in the last year since you launched, but obviously you you did have that moment where you said, I'm going to go for it. Yep. And that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of energy. So talk about that. Definitely a lot of energy, but uh, having lived through, you know, my own businesses, having lived through corporate America, I realized the most important thing that you have is your network and the ability to surround yourself with smart, really good people. 
And taking all those years of experience, I knew that if I was going to do this and I was going to accelerate this business, I needed to surround myself with with a great team and a great set of advisors and make it worth their while and have them along on this ride with me. And so based on just my network, my community, I was able to identify strategic uh, tech folks, strategic licensing folks, strategic biz dev people, finance people. And, uh, you know, they became my people. And I felt uh, much more comfortable taking that leap, knowing that they had my back. And Sweet Chameleon, what's up with the name? Sweet Chameleon was pitched to me. It was either going to be a chameleon or a popsicle inspired name. And the popsicle didn't speak to me. And, you know, I got very fortunate with uh, literally running through uh, expired uh, patents and, and brand names, came across, I made a list of about a, a hundred different variations of adjectives with the word chameleon. Sweet chameleon was available and, and we went for it. But the notion of a chameleon changing its colors spoke to the flexibility of the products that we build, as well as an ode to my MTV past, which always had a thousand iterations of its logo. So talk about how, what you're actually doing. Talk about the deals you can talk about and, and kind of how it works. Because sure. many of us are potential customers of what you're doing. Tell, tell us how we might see this come to life. Sure. So we are actively speaking with sports leagues, with creators, any, you know, one of the things that has occurred in the last few years is the proliferation of IP. In the past, you had intellectual property around large movie premieres, sports teams, but now there's YouTube superstars, there's college athletes with their name image likeness rights. Uh, everything is an IP and anywhere there is a community, there is an opportunity to create a product. And I think uh, the way we work is we identify IP that has value and community that we can effectively work with and create either a, uh, a joint venture or a more traditional licensing relationship. Once we have that relationship in place, we will look to create physical products. Um, there's been obviously a complete uh, digitization of IP and, and there's digital worlds right now. Those are big trends. However, our company basically creates, uh, we're printing memories and our tech, the 3D printing technology is pretty amazing. And what we are doing is creating original products, everything from collectible tickets and credentials to avatars with custom clothing to even, you know, collectibles featuring yourself, team jerseys, player busts and figures. There's really no limitation. The only limitation is the, uh, you know, our imaginations and the, the designs. Once we have a design in mind for the product, we literally take the file and we manufacture it. We can manufacture one or we can manufacture 10,000 or, or 100,000 of them. And what makes our products unique is there's, again, our speed to market, our elastic supply chain, and the ability to distribute uh, many, many different ways, both as a B2B partner, as well as a direct to consumer solution. So to be clear, you guys do the actual 3D printing. It does Correct. not require we, 3D printing facility. It does not. We, solution at home, I should say, yeah. Correct. We we manufacture, and one of the moats really around our business is the quality of product. Uh, everything that we are producing and manufacturing goes through a, a rigorous QA process. And uh, again, it needs to look beautiful and it needs to represent the IP that, you know, that fans are accustomed to. It needs to have the right dimensions, the right skin color, the right um, accessory features. It's it's, you know, that is the most important thing is to have a great product. And going back to your earlier question about digital, we have married the, the we, we went the, the opposite way. Most brands went from physical to digital, uh, excuse me, digital, uh, physical to digital. We're going digital to physical. Mm -hmm. So we represent an opportunity to have a, a true utility for any digital asset 
and through dynamic QR codes, all of our products can be an evergreen uh, collectible that activates everything from content, offers, AR experiences. So that ticket stub, that team jersey, that player collectible becomes a, a living, breathing, um, you know, part of your fandom. But you need to get, to be clear, you need to get the partners to buy into that aspect of it. Correct. They've they've got to be willing essentially to follow through to, to, to turn this into a real valuable uh, ongoing Correct. experience. And, Correct. And we need tool. to engage with with an intellectual property owner, whether right. it be a, a the NBA or the NFL or a YouTube superstar like Doctor Disrespect. It really it it runs the gamut from an individual to a large entity and and everything in between. Okay, so can you give a couple of examples? Absolutely. So uh, we will be creating collectible um, tickets with corresponding digital experiences for some major sporting events coming up this summer. Uh, I don't know if I'm at liberty to say which ones, but it is for a major sporting league. Uh, We are also creating team jersey replicas for... Uh, for another uh, sports league, uh, we are taking video files from popular video games, whereby you create a player or create a fighter, and we are enabling fans to not only uh, to create that within the context of the video game, we are bringing their fighter and their players to real life in, in 3D. And those fighters will sit on their desk, uh, and in many cases, we will either the QR code will link back to the game itself. It can link back to some of their gameplay or to a uh, sponsor offer or message. Uh, Michael, talk about cost, how it how it comes about, and and even in the short time that you've been doing this, how kind of economies of scale have already lowered costs. Correct. Absolutely. If we looked at this, you know, four years ago, uh, this would have been hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. Um, to, to be clear, this is a premium item. So this is not the injection mold um, um, uh, Hasbro product where- It's not a Howie Rose bobblehead? That's your it's not. Bobble, no, bo- the one thing we don't do is bobbleheads. Bobbleheads really? re- require such a uh, meticulous installation of a spring that yeah. the the labor itself is, is a disaster. But- um, uh, how we differentiate is, you know, most traditional consumer products are made with uh, a mold. Uh, it takes it, the mold itself is about fifty thousand dollars minimum. Takes about three to six months to develop it. Uh, you develop five hundred thousand of these in China. You ship it back. You warehouse it and you distribute it to Target and Walmart, and you sell it for seven to ten dollars. Unlike that model. Our products range depending on size and and density. So we are only printing what we need to print. So we are doing our our small part to support sustainability. Uh, There's no inventory. There's no warehousing. One of the things, because of that elastic supply chain, we can be in market within two weeks. But our costs range, I would say, from on the lower end of a three-inch type model, anywhere from $25 to $35, upwards of a couple hundred dollars for a larger model, uh, a seven to 10-inch model that has a, a great deal of density. So it is definitely a premium product. And how um, how has it been? But you've seen the price, are the prices coming down? I mean, you said five The prices ago. have come down and there is, there isn't the same uh, uh, pricing of efficiency scale that you see with units in the 500,000 to a million. However, our pricing has come down, I would say by 25 to 35%, even since we've started to do this. And with the proliferation of some of these uh, printers, and the technology associated with obviously converting files from 2D to 3D has also dramatically um, improved our efficiency and, and cost savings. So let, let's uh, take an example. We'll pick um, one of your favorite teams, the Jets. <laughs> um, you go through the you know the laborious place of 
getting a license, you know, getting approvals, working with the league and the team, figuring out what the marketplace is, all those very, very cost intensive things. Um, what would be an example if you look and put your futurist hat on that, that a fan would be able to get a sweet chameleon piece of something going forward? Let's say I'm thinking Aaron you know, Rodgers, Joe. Well, I was going to say, let's say that guy number eight, we don't want to use his name right now, and it's not Browning Nagel, um, comes along and something happens that is miraculous or or something that is just, you know, once in a lifetime, you know, can't believe that it happened. How, to walk us through the process of what it would be like for a traditional sports fan. So for in that scenario, we would identify the player or the feat, and we would look to create literally on demand a in real time a collectible associated with that uh with that event uh it could be anything from a uh you know a flat type of ticket or credential that identifies the feet and the player complete with team logos uh if the media can be you know licensed we can obviously link to activate via QR code that um, that product. The product itself can be sold literally almost overnight um, once the design has been finalized, either through the New York Jets uh, team store or Fanatics or uh, via a third party, including the Sweet Chameleon site. If it's a specific player, we could look to quickly scan them with some some component that uh, relates to their their accomplishment and their feet on the field and literally create that that as well. Those are probably the two things we would look to do almost immediately in real time. So would you say for today, this is better for events yet to happen or is it easier to build for memorial events that have already happened? Like, I hate to say this, but I think at the end, well, we're here in the middle of May, but I, I'm 99% sure at the end of June is the 50th anniversary of the last time the New York Knicks won an NBA championship. I'm pretty sure it's like June 27th. So if you were working with the NBA or the Knicks or, um, you know, whoever owns the rights to Willis Reed, let's say, is it easier to to strategize and come up with a cost efficient and, and mass opportunity or or collectible opportunity for something that's already happened, which could be more detailed or for something that's immediate. Easier to do something that's already happened. And we are actually fairly close to doing something with one of the sports leagues for exactly that. We are going to commemorate each one of the te um, teams in the league with a greatest game series. We are going to roll out a hundred limited edition collectible items featuring that either game or magical season. It will have unique artwork, raised features, and will take you to some type of unique content on an ongoing basis. And it'll be distributed as a 100 of each uh, of each team. So great, great mind. You you tapped into my my product, product development brain without uh, without even talking to me before. And Tom, if he was doing it for the Oakland A's, he could do one for every fan that goes to a game individually. <laughs> he could personally it, make them. Yeah. It is a it is a reward component. And, you know, part of what we're doing is the ability to customize that, um, you know, and that's really our one of our big selling points is the inability of current supply chains to satisfy quick turn demand for events. Mm -hmm. That is really at the, at the core of what we're doing. But Michael, as you try to build... As this grows and you try to build more of a flywheel of, of usage and use cases, I would imagine the goal is to get your partners, whether it's a, a league or a creator, to think of this as an almost limitless tool that they now have at their disposal as part of their approach to marketing and, and content uh, development or you know product development, things like that, that you, in other words, it's kind of incumbent on the partners to think these things through. You're not necessarily running around consulting with every one of, I mean, I assume as you grow, you'll have dozens and dozens or hundreds of partners. You do expect the partners to kind of step up and suss this out and grow 
with the business. Is that a fair way of thinking of it? That, that is absolutely uh, a fair way of thinking of this. It's at, at, at its core, it's an ancillary revenue stream that right. doesn't exist today. And subsequently, it represents a another sales and sponsorship opportunity, another sponsorable product, an optimization tool for your your sales teams, your brand teams to to enhance the fan experience with something that is is meaningful and uh, and, and that the fans want. And we were able to do that through some level of customization and personalization that um you know that others can't do then you know then the the delwood uh hat that we used to get at yankee stadium as kids mm. um so issues in the marketplace number one talk a little bit about competition yep and then number two is you know the the masters of the universe at the the shield or the jerry west logo or you know the longest tenured commissioner and gary bettman look at this and say why do we need you why don't we just, we love your idea. Thank you. We will now steal it and go do it on our own. Like has happened many other times. Sure. So to address the stealing idea, uh, you know, less concerned about that simply due to the complexity of, of doing this. Anyone can 3D print something for sure. Most people cannot 3D print something that is, has quality, has beauty, has reality and, and perfection attached to it. So for a large entity, uh, it is much, much easier to let us perfect the recipe and, and work with us and maybe one day try to buy us than it is to build this ourselves. And we've actually seen that um, in some of our discussions with some larger players Part of that challenge is, is first and foremost for us, the education, educating people on the fact that this is not an NFT, this is not a traditional uh, collectible, this is not a toy. This is a new category in the licensing ecosystem, and this is how it works. So there's definitely an education piece that, you know, admittedly, we, we struggle with sometimes. Uh, that's why product samples and product prototyping are really the lifeblood of our business. Mm. The other big challenge is simply the access to these great uh, files. They mostly don't exist, especially for older players, older movies, older IP. Um, you know, there is a process that, uh, that, you know, you can take 2D to 3D and for animation and objects, technology is, is leading the way and artificial intelligence is doing that. However, for human, human beings and individuals, it is not even close. Uh, the, the modeling that we've seen is, is awful. So there's, there's one way of doing that, and that's by hand, and that takes time. So those are the biggest challenges. I, I think overcoming that and realizing that this is a, a really unique product and unique category in the, you know, in the consumer world. Um, and, uh, you know, much like the, the NFL and every other league, we believe, uh, you know, once we have success with, with one of these, everyone will co want to copy us. Michael, the notion of digital collectibles as a concept was introduced to the, to the sports business three, four years ago with the rise of uh, NFTs, let's call it phase one, particularly Dapper Labs, which was the first mover. We obviously saw the rise and fall of that market. Curious about the takeaways that, that you consider most important as you try to build Sweet Chameleon. And I'm reminded when Joe asked about the Jets of something that I saw that Joe, Joe I actually use this on one of my slides in, in the class where we talk about NFTs and digital collectibles. I have a picture of a screenshot. I forget what NFT company was selling Jets collectibles, Jets NFTs, but it was a commemorative Jets ticket, NFT. So just the, the digital image of a ticket. And it was $999. I have the screenshot to prove it. And I remember when I went to that page, I was doing some research I said, this is the sign of the, the NFT apocalypse. This is just absurd. It wasn't even for a special thing. And it just seemed so arbitrary and just kind of silly. Like it just was so badly thought out. Tell us about your thoughts on that 
Michael, as we come out of let's call this phase one of digital collectibles and uh, and how you're going to hopefully do a better job in phase two. So you didn't buy that NFT? No, I just now you, I, I look at it and point out and laugh at it to, to my with my students. It's at 99 cents now, by the way. Yeah. yeah. I d- and by the way, I would imagine if we were to get log into their to their uh, um, back end, we would find out they sold, I would zero. guess, close zero. to zero. Yeah. A lot closer to zero than 100. Anyway, uh, how do you think about all that, Michael? Sure. So at a minimum, we are, you know, the most logical uh, utility for any digital file, any digital asset, any NFT, the ability to have something tangible. It, it It's so very basic. But uh, when we launched this business, amongst the first people who reached out to us were NFT holders who at the time said, I just you know, spent fill in the blank on this NFT. It's sitting in my MetaMask wallet. I'm not enjoying it. Can you bring it to life? And, you know, a light bulb went on for, okay, you know, we could probably make a a huge, you know, business out of just creating the physical, you know, twins of, of these digital assets. So, you know, Again, everything changes when someone holds something and can look at it and experience it and then, you know, activate and engage with it from a digital perspective. So, you know, first and foremost, I guess, you know, we're we're zagging instead of zigging by, you know, going a little bit old school and leading with the physical asset. You know, at our core, we are a consumer products business, one that albeit manufactures and creates products on demand. But uh, I think there's a happy balance between the physical and and digital, and there's that fidgetal word again. Uh, And just simply, uh, you know, as we move forward and do more limited edition things, I think we will look to further leverage the blockchain technology that accompanies NFTs to validate ownership, uh, authenticity, and exclusivity. Michael, it's been reported that Dapper and the other phase one NFT companies have been, let's say, trying to renegotiate their deals because there was such irrational exuberance a couple of years ago around league sanctioned or league licensed NFTs that I'm, I'm sure you read all these stories. The, the, the guarantees that were promised were agreed to contractually, didn't even come close to being met when the market declined allegedly over hundred X just using NBA Top Shot as an example. As you go out and do your deal making as an early stage company with limited capital, how are you handling that role where you have little to no leverage against these enormous companies that are used to having their way with licensees? Sure. So we are trying to take a more measured approach of seeing is believing and in the hard goods category, uh, again, there is not as much competition, if you will, for for what we're trying to do. And because of the, you know, our, you know, there's no requirement for us to have, you know, uh, a a specific order quantity, thereby our, you know, any required MGs are typically either lower or non-existent. We've tried to be super competitive on our royalty rates and to offer our partners as much upside as, as possible. Uh, but we are taking a very, you know, strategic and careful approach to we're only, you know, we're not we're going to limit our liability and your liability by only creating what uh, what we can afford to create and what the market demands. So uh, it's a, it's a different approach. Some have, you know, asked us to play more of a wait and see model, but I think that when uh, when at the end of the day, when our products are consumed and they see the engagement and excitement around them, it will lead to uh, it will lead to you know obviously a greater velocity of product and um, and uh, licenses uh, licensed IP. So so excitement uh, and buzz and all the the words that lead people down stray paths often into brick walls. Um, how do you overcome that and make sure that the business is running smartly and and in a, in a scalable way? And and what do you think that looks like, you know, five years from now, 
especially after you just mentioned a couple minutes ago, that if you look back five years, this probably wasn't even possible. Correct. So the nice thing that we have on our side is, again, I will go back to say no inventory. Uh, it gives us flexibility to not have to worry about taking on you know, a, a huge amount of a huge volume of product of warehousing and distributing. Um, it, uh, you know, the, that's where the, the measured excitement comes into play. And thus far, you know, we've really tapped into people's excitement uh, and fandom for, for what's important to them, whether it was, you know, the, the 12th player on the Lakers and, you know, we're not making that yet, but we, we could make that or, you know, your avatar from your favorite video game. It's something that's meaningful and important to you. And that's where, you know, I think we are, we are tapping into what's important uh, to people in terms of where this can go and how it, how it grows. You know, obviously there's, with the proliferation of IP uh, today from everything from NIL to uh, the creator economy, there's, there's going to be no shortage of IP that is existing, that is a legacy that is, has yet to be formed. And I think for us, the, um, our, our growth too will come in overseas markets. Mm-hmm. Um that uh, there's obviously we're already talking to different brands and IP around the globe. And one of the challenges will simply just uh, for us will be to expand our manufacturing and supply chain to those different geographies. I would say right now, the greatest uh, threat to, to this business or any other business is, is shipping costs. Uh, to go last mile doorstep to anywhere outside of North America from North America is is cost prohibitive right now. Mm-hmm. Michael, I want to ask you about the relationship with XRC. I know you refer to yourself now as an XRC Ventures company, but one more specific question about the product. Joe, I don't know about you, but I've actually never personally tried 3D printing. When you make a deal with a property that 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 is a, a major brand, let, let's take the Jets example. Everybody's got a style guide. Everybody's got a color scheme. You got to live by. How does it work when the production is being done for something that has to be just absolutely perfect? Like the jet screen is a very distinctive green, and then of course there's white mingled in. They've got their black mingled in. How does that work when the product actually gets printed? So uh, we match the style guide to over a million color options that exist in our manufacturing process. Wow. The only limitation to that, the only thing that doesn't look great is metallic colors right now. Right. That's the only limitation. And I yeah. think we'll hopefully be able to overcome that in a more meaningful way. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I didn't think of that angle, but, but a lot, especially in the NFL, there's kind of a metallic look with a bunch of those. Uh, well, I'd say the majority of the teams have a metallic, at least with the helmets. Yeah, and when I say metallic, I mean literally, you know, the sparkly silver and golds of yeah. the world. But yeah. our machinery and manufacturing can take into account over a million color options. Wow. Okay. That sounds uh, promising. Um, <laughs> so XRC, talk about that relationship. Because I know when you first got going, you were bootstrapping for a, a period of time. As you said, you, you assembled a team of advisors and technologists to help you get going, but eventually you did this deal with XRC. Can you talk about that? Sure, so XRC is a a partner of ours. We were part of their last cohort uh, where we went through the traditional accelerator program, Uh, blessed to be uh, part of that and surrounded by the, the amazing folks at XRC providing guidance, resources, and uh, strategic investment in our, in our business. So they, will, they are and will be a partner moving forward as we continue to grow and um, you know, expand our business and, and bring on uh, you know, new investment opportunities as well. One last question from me. Um, don't take this the wrong way. Um, but, and, and, you know, I honestly really haven't experienced any ageism, I don't think, at least not overtly. But when you take this interesting new opportunity to, to um, a league, a team, uh, an esports company, do you have to bring like the, you know, the ubiquitous 22 year old 
into the room with you, even if it's like an actor you can hire? Or do people, do you think because of your interest and background, especially being at places like MTV, make it um, a positive that it's a relief that you're coming in the door versus, you know, you know, someone wearing a hoodie? Not that you couldn't wear a hoodie, of course. So it's, I love that you brought it up. It's something that I've thought about. Uh, I haven't experienced it directly yet, at least not to my knowledge or to my face. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, I try to make it as easy for people as possible. And as I said earlier, one of my greatest challenges is just education about this new product. So mm-hmm. the ability to get in front of people and, uh, you know, despite, uh, you know, my, my age, which hopefully I'm not too old, um, you know, I, I like to lead with my products. And once someone touches this and holds it and, you know, most of the time they look at me and they say, do you mind if I keep this? Uh, that's why we have a tough time keeping uh, prototypes on hand. Mm. Uh, that's how we've been able to overcome it so far. But, uh, you know, obviously... You, when you pres- when you reach out to to a brand or, or an IP, you you know they want to see themselves, or they at least want to see that uh, that you know about uh, who they are. And I try to you know do my homework on things I'm a little less familiar with, but um, you know part of that is just the respect for what we're trying to create, the respect for your your brand and IP. And I think that is still a, a winning winning proposition so far. So off of that, and this is my really my last question. So is the marketplace for this younger people or is it for older people who have now kind of understood a little bit about the digital collectibles, but really like the stuff that they can you know, have as tangible? Yeah. So it, it really varies by IP. Um, in fact, we were literally just presented with an opportunity to create collectibles for a much, much, much older set of uh, IP owners, whereby, excuse me, Elvis, it might've been, and whereby the, uh, you know, the IP itself is, is deceased and yeah. And we, we, you're you're on the right track. And Mm -hmm. uh, we thought about this and said, you know, is there a market for this? And if, even if there is, which I believe there is, has it been completely saturated? Mm. And ultimately we decided not to move forward uh, with that IP. Um, But um, in terms of the age, we find that if we had to create a median, it's that late twenties to mid thirties, but it really varies up and down um, based on, you know, are we talking about esports fans or are we talking about NFL fans or it, it, it varies, but that sweet spot seems to be that 28 to 35 uh, collector. Got it. I, I got a good related follow-up question, Joe, because Michael and I have talked about this. I know Michael, you're a huge music fan, very passionate, very knowledgeable We've talked about the album covers, which uh, the listeners cannot see, but we've heard reference them before. I've got a lot of old LPs that I've kept from my, myself and my brother and sister growing up. Taylor Swift. No, uh, no Joni Mitchell, not Taylor Swift. Just <laughs> go on the record again for the second time on that one. Um, but you and I, Michael, have talked previously about how that's a big loss as we got into the digital music era of initially CDs where LPs were shrunken, and a lot of stuff was lost in the translation in terms of lyrics or credits, the imagery, et cetera, and then completely lost with streaming. Yet the bond for music fans with the band and particular albums is so strong. Do you see that as an area of revitalization? thousand percent. The number of people who we talk music with or music licenses almost 100% of the time either pulls out their ticket, their box of tickets or their collection. And they say, look at what I have. And Mm. uh, it, it, there is something to it. And I can say that I I went to see my 75th Springsteen show a couple of weeks ago and I left there with a QR code in my Ticketmaster app and nothing else. And I was incredibly disappointed so we're looking to change that. We are looking to have, you know, that box of tickets filled with, you know, uh, a digital product that can not only, 
you know, look great, but activate everything from a set list to maybe some of the performances from that night. I love this. That makes so much sense. I love this. So. Imagine, imagine, yeah, I mean, the, the, you're a good example. 75 shows of one artist, that's that's quite impressive. But it's probably doubtful that Bruce Springsteen's marketing people know you or know your email address mm -hmm. or whatever. And think of the lost opportunity. Yeah. And by the way, we're talking about one of the most popular artists in music history. It would literally be millions of people that would probably happily give up some data to get in the mix on some ongoing marketing engagement. So, sure. So, so just uh, just let me drill down one more thing on, on this point. What what could the collectible be separate from a tour? I get the tour part of it, but um, could it be, for example, well, let's take Taylor Swift again, Joe, because I know she's so huge right now. So she does a new album. It's hugely popular. Could there be like a album cover art experience done three with three D printing with that style style guide? There could be an album artwork. There could be a ticket artwork. There could be an instrument um, in the shape of a record. It could be an instrument. It could be Taylor herself yeah. that we could create. And it could be, you know, hologram. we could do the different. Well, the, the QR That's code next. could activate yeah. the hologram, but we right. could have reputation era Taylor. We could have red Taylor, 1989 Taylor. You could tell I'm also a Swifty. Um, yeah. Yeah, but that's because um, of your dad duty, as I understand it, right? It's so. it's both. I like her okay, a lot. Like okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I, I just want to, and then we can get to the, the last two questions. So I saw an industry actually, and Michael, I was thinking about you the other day. There was an article in the New York Times this week about the growing marketplace for design on graduation caps. Like there are people now that you can go and say, I want my graduation cap designed and they will send you the overlay that you put on that. So when you think about album covers, that's another whole market. Who knew, you know, that that exists. And there are, there's like five people in the country are like the, the people who design the tops of, of, of um, graduation caps now, because otherwise they just get thrown out. Absolutely. I mean, this is all part of it. Like I said, yeah. if we can dream it and you're a fan of it, we can create it. And mm -hmm. um, I'm still lamenting that, uh, you know, I don't, I have nothing to show for my 75th show. And I sucks. was there with, I was there with my daughter too. It was her second show. So yeah. I was at know. city field on for what could have been the turnaround game of the year on Wednesday night. And I left with nothing. So yeah. Well, it hit me over the head when a friend called me who was in Texas the night Judge hit his 62nd and said, yeah. I saw history and I have nothing to show for it. Yeah. You know, I mean, think about a music festival like Coachella or yeah. Stagecoach or something. That another man, I want to be your biz we're, we're dev guy, Michael. This is exciting. There's so much, there's so much potential here. Do you um, want to wrap us up, Tom? Yeah. Gosh, thanks, Michael. That's quite interesting. And you've come a long way since uh, I first met you. So congrats on the progress. Thank you. Really exciting to see where in the it's last going. three weeks. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did accelerate the last few months, correct? Uh, I think that's fair to say. Um, Michael, I think you know that we do a couple of standard questions at the end for all of our guests. The first is about your consumption habits to stay smart. What are you reading, listening to, et cetera? So, you want to give a quick answer on that? Sure. So, I, I love, uh, I start every morning with newsletters like Boardroom and uh, Pro, Profluence, the Andrew Petcash. Uh, oh, I don't newsletter. know that one. Yeah. Oh, great, okay. Another one great I got in. Stuff. Great. Yeah. So. <laughs> great stuff. Uh, the Sahil Bloom for a little perspective on, on life. Uh, very interesting. I'm following about 10 different AI newsletters. Uh, the, the one I love the most is uh, Wild Tools. It gives me a new prompt to consider every day. And I, uh, I, I test it out. It's pretty good. I like the hustle. And uh, LinkedIn, is, LinkedIn has become my, my new business, uh, along with Twitter, uh, way of learning. I, I learn from smart people. I follow smart people. And every day is some, uh, some, you know, combination of those, those resources and including the Joe Favorito newsletter, which I love receiving every week. Of course. It's good. You left that to last. Anyway. Any, any That's pods, last. any pods you want to shout out? Excuse me. Any pods? Um, I haven't been listening to as many pods lately, uh, just because of lack of time in the car and, uh, you know, lack of time, but, um, 
Okay. No, I've, I've been mostly doing the newsletter and social media thing lately. Great. And then the second question is about offering some career advice, particularly to younger people getting their careers going. What say you? Uh, so uh, at, at age 22 and right out of college, I signed up for the mentorship program at MTV. And I walked into this guy's office and he said, you're going to learn how to network, kid. And I said, I know how to network. And he's like, no, you don't. He said, here's your assignment. Go meet three people. When you come back, tell me how you met them, what you spoke about, and what the takeaway is. And if you haven't done that, don't bother coming back. Good luck. <laughs> who was it? This was before email. So but who was the guy that told you that? Uh, it was a great guy named uh, Nusrat Durrani. There we go. And... Uh, it was the it was the best advice I've ever had. Uh, I, I ran with it uh, in the early, you know, most people wouldn't take my calls. I started saying I was an NYU student and they took more sympathy on me. Uh, but that that has continued to this day. So I would say, you know, and I always went in there. I did my homework. I always asked good questions and I never asked for anything. Um, I always just looked at it as I'm going to meet someone new and uh, throughout the years, I, I keep in touch. How are you? I, you know, just building that network and being a good person. I wish I took more risks earlier in my career, um, but you know that comes with time. And um, you know, ultimately, your your greatest assets are your your network and your community. And as I said at the start of this, I probably wouldn't have felt as empowered to launch this business if I couldn't surround myself with with such great people who lead to other great people. Okay. And where can everybody find you and Sweet Chameleon if they want to check it out? Uh, so the direct-to-consumer site will be launched probably in the next month or two, but you can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I post uh, most of my content uh, on Twitter, Michael Dub, D-U-B. And um, always available. Michael at sweetchameleon.com. Nice. Okay. Joe, you want to wrap this show up? Yeah. Um, once again, we've been talking to Michael Dove of Sweet Chameleon, another disruptor, influencer, futurist um, who's joined us on the cusp show this week. These are the type of shows that we love. Anyone who has an idea for us, please reach out to either Tom or I. We're both on Twitter, LinkedIn, you can find us pretty much anywhere or reach out directly to the program, DM the program, um, our Columbia program uh, on Twitter. Um, we're going to continue this on for as long as we possibly can. We have even more interesting guests coming up. It's been a great last couple of weeks. Uh, Michael Dubb, once again, from Sweet Chameleon. Thanks for joining us on The Cusp Show. For my co-host, Tom Richardson, uh, our ever-growing list of producers, now Matt and welcome Pablo not only a producer, but a recent guest on the show. Um, I am Joe Favorito. And Hernan, you forgot. Oh, that's right. I, I only also Pablo the guest last week. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But Pablo and Hernan, both guests yeah. last week. Right. Um, and Matt Hornick, who's been our mainstay, hanging in the darkness. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito for Tom Richardson once again. This has been The Cusp Show, and we'll see you down the road. Thanks, Michael. Thank you.